Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name is Kelly Schuster Paredes, and I'm a teacher who codes. And this is episode 30, where we're talking about teaching adult learners. And we have a special guest with us today, Kelly. Yes, you met uh, Ruben in PyCon. That's right. We have Ruben Lerner joining us from halfway around the world to talk about teaching adult learners Python. Welcome, Ruben. Thanks so much, guys. It is fantastic to be here. We're excited to chat. It was. It feels like PyCon was a long time ago, but it was really only like six months ago. And you and I sat down and talked a little bit about teaching and training and the differences between what you see in corporate environments and teaching adult learners, people who are either switching over to Python or maybe learning Python for part of their job, and our setting, which is in the classroom with uh, middle school students. So we're excited to have a, a conversation with you today. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, me too. All right. <laughs> so we start the same way we do every week, and we'll learn a little bit more about Ruben in a moment. But before we do that, we're going to start with the win of the week. So something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom, or I guess this week, inside or outside of the training room. Ruben, we're going to make you go first because you're our guest. What's something <laughs> that you'd like to share that's a win this week? Ooh, what is a win this week? Oh, so I'll tell you. So I got a ride to the train station from my client's office. And one of the reasons the guy gave me a ride to the train station was that he wanted to tell me that the class that I'd given him a few months ago at his company, I talked about generators in Python. And you know, generators are one of these things that are kind of high level and hard to understand. And sometimes I describe them as a, a solution looking for a problem if you're not quite sure how to use them. And he said, I want you to know that thanks to learning about generators, we reduced our code base by like 80%. And it is now easier wow. to understand. And I told him, this is for me the reason I love doing training because I feel like I'm helping people do their jobs better. They're able to do more in less time. And it was just like, I was floating around for a few good hours just from that high, from knowing that I really helped him and them to do a better job and understand things better. That's such a great thing as a teacher, knowing that you've done something and it's effective and it's working and having a student or a learner come back and tell you that. Yeah, that's just a great win. That's really cool. I, and for me, like I've used generators or, and it's helped me a lot, but I wouldn't say that I'm at the point yet where I'm like, I could reduce a code base by 80% by using them. So that's pretty amazing. And I just went and Googled generators. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to, to be honest, like most of the code, the 80% that he said they removed was all this crazy threaded stuff written in C++ that was talking to Python. But as soon as he realized oh, what nice. generators could do, he was like, oh, we can eliminate all that, make our code shorter, easier to understand, easier to maintain. And he, he went and did it. So yeah, it was a great feeling. That is really cool. Yeah, I mean, I think the memory management savings alone would make it worthwhile. So that's pretty cool. Very cool. So what's your win of the week, Sean? So I have one I have one I want to share. It's actually sort of the same way. This was kind of cool because we've been, this is episode 30 now by our count. Hopefully we can count properly um, by this point, but it's episode 30. And we just crossed 81,000 downloads of our podcast since we launched last December. But what's really cool, the, the actual win, is that we got an email from a listener, Alexandra Andora, or Alex Andora, sorry. And Alex wrote in and told us that they have been, he's been listening, he or she, I hope I understand this correctly, but she's been working on a, listening to our podcast, really enjoyed it, got inspired by it, and has now launched their own podcast called Learn Bayesian Stats. So it's all about Bayesian methods and how to use them in Python and R. And they've already recorded several episodes. 
So I'm going to put a link to the show notes in here. So if you get just got excited because you heard that there's a podcast all about Bayesian methods, it's going to be in our show notes and you should check it out. But I thought that was such a cool thing that someone else has taken the leap to start their own podcast and get their voice out there because we definitely need more voices in the Python programming space around, especially as podcasts. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We'll definitely have to see what that's all about. And I'll check. I haven't had time this week. It's been crazy. We started the, the new quarter, so it's been a, a So is that, is that your win? No, <laughs> that's not my win. Sorry. Um, my win, I mean, you know, I have to, I have to do bragging rights because I'm kind of like Reuven. I get to watch that first day with the eighth graders. And I was sitting in, it's the second day technically, but the Oh, but I think you have to, oh, I think I have you have to, to tell people, context. yeah, you have to set oh, the context so for I this. Taught, I taught the kids that Sean's currently teaching. And so I get to watch them. They haven't had Python in almost a year, depending on, on what time they had it in the quarter. And they're coming in after summertime, that summertime slide. They've had a first quarter of school and they're coming into Sean's class and he's starting to do a review and making them shut their computer, no opportunity to Google anything or look at former code. And he is having them recite or tell him how to code certain small programs. And the amount of memory recall that the kids are having from just nine weeks of learning Python, it's so great. And the kids are like, Seamus, we learned so much. You taught us so well yesterday or last year. And I said, it was good. Yeah. They probably just said it to be nice to me, but I still, it's a good win. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was great about it also is that they were working together, right? Mm -hmm. So one person might have one piece of the code, you know, like, oh, yeah, here's how we use the input function to get user input. And then another person would say, but then we need to put that in a variable, and here's how we do that. So they were all working together to kind of combine their knowledge and make it work. It and was pretty cool. It's interesting because they all had different times of the year last year. Yep. the ones that are in the class. So sometimes I taught differently in each <laughs> quarter. So we'll see which one's better. Excellent. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. So Reuven, we are so thrilled to have you on the podcast this week. I mean, going around and all the different people that you get to interact with and meet on a weekly basis, teaching courses, and then through your online course offerings and everything that you have as well. We're just really excited to hear your perspective on how people learn and how they learn Python and computer science. But if you'd start, just to give everyone a background, how did you get started in programming and then how did that turn into becoming a trainer and teaching? So I started programming at a young age, back before PCs, you know, back in the, like, the Mesozoic era, where basically, basically I, we had an Atari video game system at home for those of you who remember what that was. And there was this cartridge you could get that you could plug in and program in basic. And you could really do ridiculously basic things, you know, so to speak. And that led to when we finally got a home computer, I did some programming. And looking back, it was like a joke. Even kids nowadays who do programming are doing things way, way more sophisticated than I did. But I just sort of fell in love with computers and programming and thought it was really cool and fun. And so I ended up going to MIT and studying computer science there, which basically changed my perspective on everything, like, oh, that's what programming is. That's what computer science is. And so I figured, okay, I'll go get a job like everyone else in the computer industry. And so I worked for HP for about two years. And then I worked for Time Warner on their website. I should mention that while I was at MIT, I edited the student newspaper and we set up one of the first websites in the world. So like we were always using computers and doing technical stuff. And I just sort of fell into this web thing 
And while I was there also, well, we had to use some high-level languages. So we did some Perl, we did some Python, because like no one was going to really write web programs, dare I say even applications in C or C++. People did that. But the moment you discovered Perl or Python, you were like, why? Why would I ever do that? And so then in 1995, I moved to Israel, and I decided to take the opportunity of changing countries to also try a new, sort of a new direction in my career. And so I started consulting. And my consulting work started off being doing basically web application work, some system administration work on Linux. And I continued working for Time Warner remotely for about four years, but that was part-time. And so I started building up my consulting practice. And what I discovered was that, yeah, many companies wanted me to come in and help them with programming. Uh, little by little, people were learning at the time about open source and Perl and Python and so forth. But a small number of companies said to me, well, instead of doing the programming for us, would you teach us how to do it? And I said, sure, sure. Now, I didn't really have a background in teaching or anything, but I figured, yeah, yeah this, could, this could be fun. I like presenting to people. And that sort of grew over time. And when it really grew a lot was when we came back to Israel after I finished my PhD coursework, but I was still working on my dissertation, someone suggested that maybe I could work with a training company and they would sell courses for me. That is to say, I would be the trainer going into the classroom to the companies and I would provide the material, but this company would sort of, they would take 50% of whatever income we got from the company, not that I knew that at the time, in exchange for doing the marketing for me. And so for about two, three years, this training company marketed my courses. And that's when I discovered, wow, I really like this. This is way more fun than programming, much more satisfying. I don't get bug reports late at night, and I can schedule my time in advance. And so basically, when I finished the PhD, I said, you know what, I'm also just going to become a full-time trainer. And it's just continued from then. So I'm guessing it's been five, six, seven years now that I've almost only been doing training. And whereas I started doing a bunch of different technologies, I'm now concentrating only on Python and the Python ecosystem. Nice. That's really cool. That's a, such a great journey. And I, you know, one thing that struck me was that moment that you said when you were in undergrad and learning computer science, that that was a moment where you're like, oh, this is how it really works. And I remember having that same sort of moment probably around my freshman or sophomore year in my computer science classes and part of my information systems coursework that I had grown up around computers my whole life. I had been in love with them and enjoyed, you know, using them and working with them and everything. But it wasn't until I had that formal training that I felt like I started to understand how they really worked and how you should think about computing, not as the hardware and the operating system and as a user, but really how you could make them do things for you that were really interesting. So the, the intro class, the intro computer science class at MIT when I was there was called, what well, we called it 6001, but the rest of the world calls it Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. It's this amazing, amazing book that uses Lisp or a version of Lisp called Scheme. I believe mm -hmm. David Beasley occasionally teaches courses using it. And it was mind-blowing. Moreover, even the stuff that I was like, yeah, 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 why do we have to learn this? I draw upon those ideas nowadays in my classroom, and I teach some of those things using some of the same, some of the same terminology. And it's amazing to me to see even professional programmers who have been working for years light up when they see how some of these things work. Yeah, I mean, I think it really is kind of amazing because especially for me, like, I, it was hard for me to grasp things in a theoretical manner, but as soon as I could see them actually in practice and see them being used, that's when it made more sense, right? Mm -hmm. The first time that I was learning about, 
you know, recursive algorithms and things like that, where we were talking about it more in a mathematical context. It was just banging my head against the wall. I couldn't get it. Why would you do it this way? Why would you do it this way? And then the first time they showed me, okay, well, here's Fibonacci sequence, or here's, you know, even the most trivial of actual code and algorithms, and I could try it out for myself. That's when it started to, you know, click for me. And, and it's really just like, it was the same thing. I had that moment where I just lit up and I was like, okay, now I get it. This is cool. Amazing. Yeah. So go ahead, so, Kelly. You get you get the next part. Well, I was just sitting there thinking. You switched into into teaching, and I'm just thinking the whole time. I keep keep remembering the first time that we watched Sean teach, and it was just like this natural moment. Do you remember your first your first time in a classroom when you were actually you know in front of students teaching them? So I've always done, even from the time I was a little kid, I've always done some sort of teaching, leading stuff. So when I was, I must have been nine or ten years old, I volunteered to run the children's service at my synagogue. And then when I was in high school, I was always sort of giving talks as part of my youth movement and so forth. And so I was always sort of getting up and, and teaching, but it wasn't in a classroom per se. And I definitely remember sort of the first, maybe not the first time, but one of the first times when I was training. And I went through things. And I taught it, and everything seemed to go well, and every, everyone seemed to be happy. But looking back, I'm just appalled by <laughs> everything I did, how much material I tried to teach in a short period of time, how few exercises I used, how I didn't check to see if they understood it more than a, yeah, yeah, okay, let's go on. I mean, it's definitely been, it's definitely been a long journey of actually making sure that my pedagogy works. And... Even then, I mean, it's a hard thing to measure, right, even under the best of circumstances. But I feel like one of my advantages, sort of one of my competitive advantages, and I guess you guys have this also to a certain degree, is I'm doing this every day, right? Like, I'm out in the field teaching every day, and so I can experiment with stuff. And I'm often teaching the same course twice, three times in the same month. So I can have this very quick feedback loop of, did this work? Great, I'll use it next time. Oh, boy, this did not work. I'm not going to use it another time. I mean, even, I'll go so far as to say, and I hope not too many of my students are listening to this, even some of the jokes I make, many of the jokes I make at certain parts of the class, I make them knowing what the reaction will be <laughs> because I've made the same jokes at the same points in the past, and I know it'll, like, break the seriousness or allow them to concentrate or just release some tension. I think that's the benefit of teaching a lot and often. We have that same opportunity. We have quarter classes. So we get to teach anywhere between three to five times a day, and then we do it every nine weeks, the same thing. And I think that we were experimenting a lot in the beginning last year, trying to figure out where our footing was. And I, I, honestly, what I taught first quarter was completely different than what I taught second, third, fourth, and now in this quarter. And we've been doing that same kind of feedback loop a lot, seeing it grow and mutate into a, a nice you know, pedagogical kind of process, you know, it's been fun. So I totally get what you're talking about. What I think that's interesting too, and I, I didn't really expect this until I started teaching, but it's amazing to me how much the job of being a teacher is almost like being a stand-up comedian, right? In that when you're in the audience, it's hilarious and it sounds spontaneous and it sounds like, wow, they're like, they are making this up just for me, right? But you don't see all of the practice that goes into it, the rehearsal, the re repetition that helps that, that comedian 
know exactly how the joke is going to land and how to how to read the room to land it. So I think that's a really great perspective, Ruben. I hadn't really thought about it that way until you mentioned it. But yeah, that ability to cycle through it a few times and know how your audience is going to react is a really you know really effective way of knowing how to engage them. Yeah, we talk about all that a lot with the reflective the reflective learner and the reflective teacher, and I think that's. Do you write down any of this after you get done teaching a class? You go, oh, yeah, I need to remember that this one worked. No, that's a really good idea. (laughs) 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 I should really do that. (laughs) It's called metacognition. You should really do that as a teacher. Reflect on your learning every single day. (laughs) Don't worry, Ruben. She tells me the same thing, too. (laughs) I mean, I reflect on it typically on the commute home. I'm like, boy... This worked great and that worked terribly as I nod off to sleep on the train or something. But writing it down would probably be more effective. Yeah, yeah. Write it down and tell somebody. That's what we always recommend. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ruben, tell us a little bit more about this because you mentioned that you teach the same course, you know, two or three times a month sometimes. Well, what does it mean to be a corporate trainer? Like, what is your typical course look like? Is it always in the classroom? Do you, I know you have some online courses as well, but can you tell people that maybe aren't as familiar with this profession, like what does it mean to be a corporate trainer and how do you approach it? Okay, so most of the people I deal with are in high-tech companies of various sorts. And their day-to-day job is typically going to be writing software, maybe writing tests, maybe writing, you know, working on hardware, something very techy. And so their company comes to them at some point and says, hey, good news, you are now going to be working in Python. And the employee basically thinks, uh-oh, I need to learn this. And the company says, better news, we're going to give you a class so you don't have to teach yourself. Because there are many companies where they have people teach themselves. They'll give them a Safari subscription on O'Reilly. They'll buy them books. They'll give them, a, I don't know, a, 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 what's it called, plural site subscription. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think the two of you can vouch for this as well as I can. There's no substitute for good frontal presentation and learning. So these companies then realize, well, we want to teach Python to our people in part as like a perk because we want them to be happy and stick around and in part so that we can make sure everyone's on the same level and in part just to make sure they do it within a certain time frame and don't say, oh, yeah, 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 I'll read the Python book someday. So the company then says, well, we better find someone. So they look around for a trainer, a Python trainer, and at least in Israel, I'm one of the, the few people doing it. In the, you know, the larger world, there are quite a few more people doing it. And so I will typically get a call from a company saying, we need a Python class. Now, there are things that many of them say. So many of them are like, really? It's, so my, there are a few different courses that I teach. I have about nine or ten different courses that I can offer. But my bread and butter is really my intro Python class, which is intro to Python for people with programming experience. So you've been programming in Java, C Sharp, C++, C, whatever it is for five, ten years. You don't know much Python. Maybe you've been working with it for a few months, but you really don't get how it works. So I'll come in and in four days get you through that. And so I'll say to a company, okay, it's going to be four days. It's going to cost you such and such. Sometimes, maybe about like, it's gone down a bit, but maybe about a quarter of the time, the company will say, really, four days? You know, our people are smarter than average. Maybe you can cut that down to three days. And it's truly amazing to see how many companies have smarter than average people. Definitely <laughs> all of them claim that. Um, right. <laughs> you know, it's a Lake Wobegon effect for corporations. And so I will then arrive at the company. And usually I tend to limit it to 16 people in Israel, 20 people elsewhere, and then 30 people in China because of the noise factor. 
So Israelis tend to be very, very boisterous. So I got to keep them calm and quiet and then small. And I'll come in and plug into the projector. And we'll, I'll typically teach from usually nine to five with an hour long lunch break and a 15 minute break in the morning, 15 minute break in the afternoon. And it's all my show. Like I'm there talking for what would be eight hours minus, let's say, let's call it six and a half hours minus exercise time. And so part of it is me talking, part of it is answering questions, part of it is exercises. And so I have an intro Python course that I do for that. That's four days. I have an advanced Python course that's four days. I have an intro day of science course that's four days. And then the rest of them are a bit shorter. So I have something in regular expression, something in Git. And little by little, my, my sort of repertoire and offerings have grown. And it's not unusual for a company. And in fact, I, build, I, I sort of depend on this. If a company likes what I do, they'll keep bringing me back for more and more and more groups. So a company that I was at earlier this week, where the guy gave me the ride to the train station, I think I teach just about all of their new employees who come through the company. So I'm there easily twice a month teaching a course. And other companies call me once a year. And the companies that like me a lot will then invite me back to give, well, I give the intro course, and then the advanced course, and then the data science course, and maybe a Git course. So it becomes a nice recurring gig. And I get to know that what I call the training managers. And it's shocking But some of these massive, massive, massive Fortune 500 companies, they'll email me, like the head of the training will email me and say, hey, do you have any time in February? I'll say, yeah, what about these days? And I'll say, done. That is the negotiation I have with a multi-billion dollar company. That's pretty cool. Have you ever had anyone come up to you and say, you know, we have this problem we kind of want to solve. What can you teach us that will help us solve it? So it's not unusual. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Like, Like, look. And they're right to say that, right? Because my very often they'll say, well, we have these specific needs. And at least 80, 90% of the time I say, oh, yes, I cover that in my course, which, as my advisor likes to say, has the advantage of being true, right? It is actually the case that I'll cover those things in my course. But sometimes they'll have specific requirements that I don't cover. And so I'll say that, look, I don't cover that usually, but I can learn it, I can work on it. And I use that opportunity often to teach myself something new and expand the repertoire of things I can teach. And if they come to me in class, like my my regular expressions course, I will encourage them to bring the log files they're working on so we can work together to sort of parse them. That's interesting. I was just thinking while you were talking about that, that's when I came up with that question, thinking, you know, the kids will come up to us and say, we want to make X, teach me how to do it. And it's like, it's not the actual teaching of Python that we're teaching, it's actually solving the problem for them. And so I was just curious of that kind of... Yeah, how much of it is actually the coding versus how you think about solving problems exactly. maybe in a Python or Pythonic sort of way? Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, so first of all, I love it when they ask me those sorts of questions. Right? In, in general, I mean, someone told me years ago, maybe this is like a well-known thing among teachers, but someone told me that there are two kinds of questions. Good questions, the student does not know the answer, and excellent questions, the teacher does not know the answer. And I get excellent I'm questions that. every day. <laughs> I, like <that. laughs> I, like, I love it. And I say to my students, I, every day I learn something new because people ask me hard questions. I have to go research it. I learn better. And most of what I teach is based on these challenges to me. And sometimes people will say, well, what if I want to do X and Y and Z? And so I'll try to solve it with them or in front of them so they can see how to solve it. Because for me, like whenever I do an exercise, they have time to do it. And I try to get them to do it in pairs. Sometimes they listen more than others. And then I solve it in front of them. Because for me, the process of solving is one of the most important things I'm teaching them. And yet, sometimes people will come up to me and say, oh, 
what if you want to do? And I'll say, oh, I don't know how to do that. Let's see if we can figure it out. Or better yet, I'll say, that's a great question. Maybe I can give it to you as an exercise. And as everyone looks at me in horror, I say, don't worry. I'll give it as an exercise to the next class I teach. And everyone, like, you know, chuckles <laughs> and, and, and feels relieved. <laughs> that's funny. Have you ever taught anyone that has zero computer programming experience? Similar to mine, I mean, I, I know knew HTML back in the days, but I wasn't a coder. I went to school to be a doctor. I was completely biology and math person and a little bit of engineering in school, but not one of, you know, you and Sean people. <laughs> Have you ever taught someone like me who's like, yes, I don't know anything? <laughs> yes. So I was teaching my intro Python class for a good few years at a big high-tech company. And I noticed a trend that on the first day, two or three people would come up to me and say, wow, this is great, but I'm not a programmer, and this is way too fast for me. To which I'd say, uh-oh, today was the slow day. <laughs> so, so I came up with what I call Python for non-programmers. And I love teaching the course. Typically, about half or more of the people have taken a programming course in college, and were so turned off by it, they were convinced that it is hard or impossible or they're stupid or whatever it is. And then what do you know? They're in a high-tech company managing programmers, and they'd like to know what their employees are doing. Or to survive in a the company, they need some programming skills. And so it is one of my favorite courses to teach because we start with zero and with people who, who are convinced they can't do it. And by the end of the four days together, I mean, I'm not saying they are now professional software engineers. But what do you know? They can write some basic functions, work with some files, and they understand what some basic data types and variables are. And they have this incredible sense of accomplishment. Absolutely. It really is amazing. And I feel like that's part of the like responsibility we have as teachers and trainers is, is to help them overcome that own label that they've put on themselves, right? Of, oh, I'm not a programmer. And just by helping them do it. Like, let me show you. Let me, like... Let me show you that you can do this, and maybe you're not going to go out and apply for that, you know, junior developer job, but you can at least take off the label that says I'm not a programmer, right? Right, right. It's a kind of literacy that I don't know if everyone needs to have, but everyone can have it at some level or another. That's definitely one of our theories. We, the first thing we say is the last thing we want you to, to think is that we're expecting you guys to be programmers and you know we're teaching sixth seventh and eighth graders so at this moment of their life that's the last thing they're not not many of them are saying yes i just want to go program and and hack in well actually they all want to hack we're not teaching that uh, not yet <laughs> but it's not one of those things that we want them to sit there and say we're we're teaching them to be programmers so it's an interesting take if we can just get them to understand and for me, I want them to appreciate appreciate this as a language, appreciate that that they can see some words, that they can recall the words, that it's not really that confusing. Because a lot of their parents will say, will say to me, I can't help them. And then I look at them and I say, well, I don't expect you to help them. If you want to learn, you could come into my class. <laughs> but it's one of those things. I just want the kids to be able to appreciate the, the complexities, the, the skills involved in learning and seeing a simple code get entered and then something come out of it. Yeah. yeah so and and Ruben, I wanted to ask you about about that sort of building confidence and 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 how people can be successful and find success because 
one of the things that I really like about, you know, kind of going through your website and looking at all the things that you offer is that you offer such a wide range of ways to learn Python, right? There's, there's the weekly Python exercises that you have. You've got free newsletters for email, so you can kind of get things dripped to you over time that you can learn from. But there's also all of your video courses and your in, you know, your in-person training and things like that. How does someone who's you know in your audience, that kind of right zone of people that you know maybe need to learn Python for whatever reason or have been told that they need to learn Python, how do they know what way might work best for them or in what circumstances should they choose? you know, a, an online course versus going to their boss and saying, hey, I need you to send me some in-person training so I can really understand this. Like, are, are, do you have some advice for someone who's trying to make that kind of decision? Look, I still think if the trainer is good, then in-person training is always going to be superior to video training. There's one exception to that, or I would say one, one reason where that's not true, and this I got from my students. So I have I've one client where we're now doing some blended learning, where what they've done is they've bought my online Git course and have people watch that for a few weeks or, or the night before. And then I come in and do a day of exercises and continue from where they left off in the videos. And I, I mentioned them in the class oh, probably a few weeks ago, well, I'm glad I'm here because it's better than the videos. And someone said, no, the videos, I can rewind. I can return to it. It's great reference material. And so that told me that there is an advantage there. But the fact is that when I'm in the classroom, people can interrupt me and stop me and ask me questions and I can go over their code. So I would say that's always going to be better. The reason I do the video courses is quite frankly because otherwise I can't reach all the people I want to reach. There's a limit to my time. I don't do open enrollment courses, not yet. I'm toying with the idea of doing it in late 2020. But I don't do open enrollment courses. So if your company isn't willing to spring for me to come to teach 16, 20 people, then it's not going to happen. And this is like the next best thing. Weekly Python exercise is, it came out of people asking me questions. So very often when I'm done with the course, people will say, how can I learn more? How can I practice? Right? So, so this is one of the nice things about adults. Some of them at least, in fact, many of them realize that it's to their advantage to know Python better for their current jobs and for their future jobs. And so they want to learn. And so they'll say to me, okay, now that we're done with the course, this is great. Where to now? How can I get more exercises in practice? And so weekly Python exercise is like, okay, let's give you some exercises. So it's a bunch of 15-week courses. And it's very simple. You get email on Tuesday with a question. You get the answer the next Monday with the answer. And there's a form in between. And sometimes I do live office hours. And so my feeling is that weekly Python exercise for people after they've taken a course to reinforce it. But you know what? There are people who do it at the same time as they're learning. There are people who buy the object-oriented weekly Python exercise and the object-oriented video course for me and go through it together at the same time, which I never expected, but people are definitely doing it. Nice. It's actually interesting. As you're sitting there talking about this, I'm thinking about my learning journey. And I did most of my learning at the beginning through online courses. And then when I, when Sean and I started doing this podcast and becoming more familiar with how we work together, he was the person I interrupted in the middle of a sentence, <laughs> asking him questions, pausing the video. And I was just thinking like this whole combination of online video, either challenges to work on and having some sort of mentor or facilitator is really is really crucial. It's really critical and it's a nice blend of learning opportunities. So well, I'll tell you a weekly by that exercise has gone through a whole bunch of iterations. I started it as 
it was supposed to be like an ongoing evergreen course. So whenever you subscribe, that week you get exercise one, and then exercise two, and then exercise three. And I realized that in any given week, people were pretty alone. You were probably the only one your week doing exercise five. And someone else was the only person their week doing exercise three. And the community and the reinforcement and talking to other people is so crucial to learning, in my opinion. So I made it then so that everyone is on the same schedule. And then I realized it was a year long. Like I said, okay, I'll do 52 exercises. And it was just way, way, way too long for any like normal human. So now it's 15 weeks. And that seems to be about the right length before people lose interest. And what I have then is people posting their answers in the forum so everyone can learn from everyone else. Now, out of a cohort of 800 people, only 15 people are going to do that. But they're gaining a lot from reading, writing, helping, and I think they're getting the most out of it. And it's this culture that just sort of emerged, which I really am enjoying watching. That's pretty cool. Well, I know we don't have too much time left, but one of the things I definitely wanted to ask you about was how you teach Git. And let me give you a little bit of context because I want to think, I want to talk through, you know, maybe some strategies or tips for teachers who are trying to teach Git. Because I, what I found is that Git can be a little confusing to learn sometimes. And it's hard for people to grasp how this all fits together, especially when you layer in, you know, remote repositories and things like that. But what we're trying to do is we have this Lego robotics team. And Lego has been doing this phenomenal job of using robotics to teach coding and to teach engineering and problem solving and everything. So we have, I think, what, probably 25 or 30 students right now that are in this year-long competition to build Lego robots that solve challenges and solve problems and everything. And what's really cool about it is that this year you can code the robots in Python and use them in competition. So Python is now competition legal. And we're super excited about it because one, it's so much more fun to code in Python than in a block-based editor. But two, it opens up these doors for us to be able to create you know, version control for our students so that they can start to collaborate better and share code and work on the same code base and do better testing and all these things that it enables. But what we're trying to figure out is... It's so confusing. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, I mean, I don't... Like, it can, be, it can be really confusing, right? So how do, you, how do you teach Git to people who have never used version control before or don't understand even why you would want to use version control? Where do you even start? And I, I don't think you need to like, you know, give away your entire course. That's why it's there. But do you have any tips for people who are trying to teach this, right? Like how do I teach Git to someone in a classroom environment or in a school environment so that you know, our students can start using it to better manage their code. Okay, so first of all, Git is an amazing, amazing system that I love dearly and has definitely improved my work as a developer. That said, it was developed by Linux kernel developers, not the people you would turn to for easy to understand user interfaces. So like right. the same word means different things and different words mean the same thing. Like, come on, come on. Like, <laughs> like, like really, did you have to call it the stash and the index and the cache? I don't think so. So there's that problem, which I fully admit. Secondly, so you have to, first of all, tell people they're not crazy. And that those who come from other version control systems feel extra crazy because the same words are used in the two different systems and mean completely different things. So one of the things I try to do in my Git course, and this surprises a lot of my students who've been using it for a while, 
am getting, getting very frustrated is the first half of the course, even the first two thirds of the course is all local, all on your own computer. I don't talk about clone. I don't talk about pull. I don't talk about push. I want you to be comfortable with the idea of commits and branches and merging in different ways. Once you're comfortable with those ideas, the remote stuff is a natural extension of the local stuff. Part of the problem is also, though, that Git is one of these systems that you have to understand how it's built in order to use it. You can't have an abstraction layer. You have to know these are the four types of objects that are stored in the database. Because once you understand what the objects are, and once you understand what the commits are, suddenly it starts to make more sense. So I typically, when I'm teaching, I'll have them try a few things. Like we'll do a little bit of committing. I'll show them how that works. And then I'll immediately sort of pull back the curtain, show them what objects are there and how they fit into what we've been doing already. And then we'll talk about branching and merging. And then only when we've done all the different kinds of branching and merging and conflicts and everything, then we start using the network. And they're like, oh, pull is just a merge, but instead of being two branches on my computer, it's a branch on the other computer and my computer. Got it. And so I think that helps to break through a lot of the, the conceptual barriers. That makes a lot of sense because I think when I was first learning it, the remote aspects of it really were confusing because it's another layer that you don't actually need to understand in order to understand the core functionality of Git and the core value of Git. Because there's probably, to be honest, there's probably a you know, big chunk of developers out there that never actually have to merge code with anyone else, right? They're using it for their own personal projects. They're using it for other stuff. They probably don't actually need a remote repository for anything except for the fact that it helps keep their code, you know, kind of safely stored somewhere else, right? And it helps them have a, sort of a backup, right? So I think it, that totally helps me think about it in a different way because we can definitely push back for our students that idea of having the shared repository of code while we figure out the basics of how to manage Git. Yeah, I think just getting in there, I love just taking notes. So I'm just trying to process that. It was just that defining the vocabulary kind of step, that first step, especially for someone who's a, a non-programmer. You know, what do all these things mean and what do they look like on my computer? That's huge. I'm thinking for sixth graders, seventh graders, and eighth graders, just getting past that level on their own computers is, is a huge accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny, Ruben, because I think you kind of, you grew up in the same generation where we did, where everything was a file, right? Um, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> right? Everything was a file. There, there's no cloud, right? We have files. And for our students to even think about this concept of directory structures and files and file types and things like that, sometimes it's like that is the first lesson that we need to teach, or like that's lesson zero before we even start talking about version control. Yeah, we saw wow. kids naming their files, copy of, copy of, copy of, Miss Paredes' is copy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Look, a lot of the people, I would say, in fact, the overwhelming majority of people who come to my Git course, and I even mentioned this when I started, is, okay, like, <laughs> let me guess, you've been using Git for a little while because you were told you have to, and someone told you, don't worry, it's so easy, just use these five commands. And they work great until they don't. And then you go to that same person, they're like, oh, blow it all away, just clone again, and then it'll all be fine. <laughs> and so these people right. who are experienced engineers and very smart people feel like they're, like, like, they're like, how can this be? How can I not understand a version control system? How could it all be going so wrong? 
And it's mostly conceptual. Like once you can break through that, I really find people have a much, much easier time using it. And what Kelly said about the vocabulary is important. You have to use the same vocabulary as Git. Otherwise, people will be even more confused and frustrated. Yeah, I think that that really helps. So just, you know, starting with some of those foundational elements and the foundational learning, I think will, will help a lot. And you have, you have to understand, we're also trying to teach conceptual learning to kids whose brains haven't started really developing conceptual concepts. I mean, they're, they're, they're abstract concepts, concepts and they don't really make connections between them. So we have to break it down even further. And it, I always do that. I'm like that little angel or devil on Sean's shoulder going, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I, I must <laughs> say, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I am awestruck that you're trying to teach or are successfully teaching Git, let alone this other stuff, to, you know, middle schoolers. That's, that's very impressive to me. I mean, my 16-year-old, I guess she's, well, she's now like, yeah, I guess she's still 16 for another month or so. So she was in this entrepreneurship program where they all learned Python and they were using Git. And it was one of these situations where I said, oh, really, how are you doing this and how are you doing that? And basically merges were taken care of by their TAs. And they just had to like pull and push. And one day when she got like really stuck with Git stuff, I had to sit down and debug it for her. She was like, wow, dad, like, you really do know this stuff, but like, <laughs> which is always like nice to hear and affirming from your own children. But they sort of assumed, let's keep it simple and not confuse the kids. And that worked well until it didn't. Right. And, well, and the approach that we've taken with this also is that we teach them the things that they need to do what they want, right? So in this case, and we're trying to think a few steps ahead for them, but we're all learning Python this year on these Lego robots because we want to get to this place. And we've set this shared vision. We want to get to this place where we have really well-functioning code that is very predictable, it's well-tested, we know how to use it. And so if we do the foundations of it right, we have to, we'll be able to really compete well and show, show up strongly to all these matches and competitions. But then we started to break it down together, like with the students. Well, if we want to do that, if we want to have this, this goal in mind, what do we need in order to do that? And one of the things that our students have always talked about is the difficulty of collaborating on code. Like how hard it is to, or at least in the, in the block-based code, how hard it was to share all that code among four or five different students all working on the same robot. Because you'd have version issues, you'd have one person had part of the answer but not the other part and nobody can work on it at the same time so once they saw this they're like okay well we need a way to better collaborate on code and my thought was well look you know maybe it's a bit early and we'll see how it goes but why don't we try learning how to use git and use this as a way to you know to collaborate better to learn some new concepts and add some of this to our approach and, you know, we'll let you know how it works over the next few months. We're just starting this journey, but they start to see, they see the value in it. They have something they want to do, and in order to do that, they need Git. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting because the Python community is very open with sharing, and, and the Lego community calls it gracious professionalism. Yeah. <laughs> and we oh, see like our that. kids sharing. We sh well, we see our kids sharing things like one student may need something, a turning function, and then the, the other team doesn't know that they need that until they need it. And so we have that sharing with the mentor kind of, you know, over the shoulder, pointing to them, telling them what to write. And Sean was right to come up with this idea of what if 
this was in get and this was the turning function to the left and this is what we needed to follow the line or we needed to solve a problem and I think it, once we get that nailed down I think it's going to be a pretty beautiful thing. Yeah, our goal is actually to have an open source library of code for, for people like, who yeah. want to code the robot so not just our teams can benefit from it but any team that wants to use Python would be able to use our library of code that helps take care of basic things like how do you drive forward a certain amount of distance or how do you turn or how do you you know use the gyroscope to stabilize your driving all these things that are really cool and interesting problems to solve but for a lot of kids might be a little bit outside of their reach they just want to like solve problems and fix stuff and maybe they can they can do it a little bit better if we open source some of the code base do you ever have your students make presentations like to share what they've done with the others we do in a needs basis. For example, this weekend, we went to competition just specifically on the robot game. And we had, on my Twitter feed, I actually posted, we had one of our eighth graders who's been coding in Scratch pretty much all his life. I think he came out <laughs> in kindergarten starting to code in, in Scratch. He's just one of these kids that can break down problems. And when he got to us last year with Python, he just soared. And he was working with Sean doing some complex math, some calculus. And then he came over and he was teaching a, the sixth grader. He got a little upset because she actually got two challenges at the match and he only got one. But, <laughs> but given the fact that he'd been coding in Python on the robot for about 48 hours, yeah. I think he did pretty well. Did oh, that's, really that's, well. that's pretty impressive. Yes, yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, it's nice when you have a lot of opportunities to do one-on-one -on -one and sit down with kids in this kind of environment, I think they learn faster. Just like what you're able to accomplish in four days, we accomplish a lot in nine weeks. Yeah. Yeah, and at the end of our nine weeks, we do have a, a section where the students are working on their own projects. So they take what they learn and create something new with it. And they have to, of course, learn new things along the way. And at the end of that, I stopped calling it presentations because presentations usually meant that instead of getting cool code and stuff that people had made, I got a lot of PowerPoint slides. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I started calling them demos. So it's demo days and they have to demonstrate how their code works or how their product works. So we try to take them through a shortened version of a product development lifecycle from ideation through build and testing and a little bit of user research and testing also all the way through to demonstrating this proof of concept or this product that they've created to their peers and sometimes to like administrators and other teachers and everything too. So we've seen some pretty cool projects come through that way. That's pretty great. So Kelly has a question for you. I think she wants to, f to finish up with and I think this is more just out of curiosity from her own interest in international languages, other cultures, things like that, and that relationship between written and spoken languages and computer languages. So Kelly, I'm curious to know the answer to this, but I think it was your brilliant question, so I'm going to let you ask it. So when you Google your name, there's just so much information out there, and I got, I got into reading so many things, and I don't know when you wrote this blog post, so, but you were trying to teach yourself Chinese. I don't know if how successful or whatever, but I'm actually interested in including both your spoken and your programming languages. How many total languages do you know and, and what are they? Okay, so we'll start with the programming languages because that's more boring. And there, uh, you know, I mean, Python is definitely the language that I know best now, in part because I just deal with it every day. But my Ruby is still pretty strong. Probably if I had to, I could go back and use some Perl, although it's been a few years since I used that. JavaScript I never really got into, but I could sort of muddle my way through a lot of things. 
And the first language I learned because I was sort of brainwashed and using it in college was Lisp. And you know, I, I've sort of used a whole bunch of other things here and there, but those are probably sort of my main go-to languages. And I keep hoping to sort of pick up some others. I keep thinking I'll find some time to learn Rust, which seems to be a really cool language as well. Oh, and I guess there's also SQL, which I've been using for an awfully long time. Right. So that was uh, count seven? That's probably something <laughs> like that, yeah. And, oh, and then like, so my 16-year-old who's doing computer science, like we have majors here in Israel in high school. So she's majoring in computer science. So they're making her use C-sharp. And she keeps saying to me, oh, I can't believe you have to do things like declare variables. Oh, what a stupid language. I'm like, <laughs> like <laughs> I said, it's, it's, actually, it's actually good that, that you get exposed to these different things. So in any event, sometimes when she needs help, I'll also read ahead of where she is by a few pages. So I can sort of like fake my way through C-sharp also to some degree. Now, in terms of spoken languages, so, you know, I grew up in the U.S., and so my English is as fluent as any Americans, I guess. I moved to Israel when I was 25, and I'd already gotten pretty good Hebrew through school, through being here. I spent a semester in Israel. I really worked on my Hebrew before I got to Israel. And so my Hebrew is pretty fluent. It, it's heavily accented. Every so often I'll make a joke. Like, I lecture, I do most of my teaching day-to-day -day in Hebrew. So, you know, I'll sometimes make a joke about how... So you might not have guessed, but I'm American. Everyone will sort of chuckle like, yeah, we hear that annoying accent. The funny, the, the funny thing is that in Israel, when you're talking about high-tech stuff, high-tech is spoken Hebrew, but written English. So not that I use slides very much, but when I use slides, it's expected I'll use slides in English. No one uses slides in Hebrew, which is kind of a... So everyone's like doing simultaneous translation as they point to things and then translate them all in the way. And this is considered totally normal. I took Spanish and high That's okay. fascinating, by the way. I'm just like, yeah, like, <laughs> like, I mean, because in terms of like the way the language is even laid out, you know, right to left versus left to right and all of those things, to, to think about the mental gymnastics that your students are doing and they don't even really have to think about it, right? They're just like, yeah, it's like, why wouldn't I be reading this in English and listening to you speak in Hebrew, right? Right. It took me a few years to realize that everyone did this, that it wasn't just me. But yeah, it's only like government people and government corporations who keep everything in Hebrew, maybe university people. I took Spanish in high school, so I can like still read some of it, and I've used it on occasion. Like when we were in Portugal, where they don't speak Spanish, I was able to communicate with people using my Spanish, which was like, and my children were like, hey, dad, you actually do know Spanish. <laughs> but, but for sure, my great pride and joy, hobby slash obsession, or as my family would see it, totally crazy obsession is Chinese, where indeed I went to China, I guess it was for the first time about six years ago, seven years ago, maybe. And I've been there, I think, about 30 times. I go there and teach a few times a year. I'm starting a Chinese company to distribute my courses. I just have a ball. I absolutely love the people in China. I love the country. It's, I mean, it's great, great fun. And so just when I finished my dissertation, when I finished my PhD, I decided I needed something infinitely difficult and long-term to do. So I have indeed been taking more or less daily Chinese lessons for about an hour on Skype every morning for five years now. And it is a blast. It is so much fun. It is worth every penny when I can go to like my hotel and you know go there and say, hi, this is my passport. My company ordered a room for me. I'll be staying here for three nights. And just watching their jaws drop. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, like, that does it for me. And you know the time when I was going from one building to another at Ericsson where I was teaching and I get into the elevator and this woman says into her phone, oh, yeah, I'm going to class now. Like, I think it starts soon. I say to her, oh, yeah, I'm your teacher. I think it's in building one. And she also, like, like getting the reaction from people is great. I have a long way to go before I'm fluent. My goal is eventually to be able to lecture in Chinese as well. But, like, 
I can get around, like basically outside of class, I now basically speak Chinese with just about everyone. And they wrinkle their noses at my accent and my you know, pronunciation and my grammar. And I wrinkle my nose at the fact that they speak very, very quickly. But it's communication. I've managed to have some amazing conversations with people. I've gone to go places where you know, other, other tourists would need a translator. And I just have great, great fun. And being able to tell people I can read some Chinese, like I read about 1,000, 1,500 characters now is also kind of fun. That's really cool. That's really interesting. I'll, I'll have to contact you later and talk more about that. I, I really have an interest in how the two types of communication with coding and with learning languages, how they're sort of connected. But we'll, we won't we I'll, run out of time. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just say a few quick sentences about that because I say always that learning Chinese has influenced my teaching dramatically, dramatically, that it put me in the position of being a learner. I mean, not just a Ruben learner, but like a learner of something that is new, different, baffling, and it was very humbling. My teaching has changed a lot as a result, especially the concentration on exercises and the realization that, duh, people don't learn things the first time you say it to them or even the first time they practice it. I, this will come as a shock to experienced teachers, right? But you have to get <laughs> lots of practice from lots of different directions in order for it to work. And I would say my Chinese lessons have informed my pedagogy with Python in a huge way. That's pretty cool. And and now you, like, by the way, I think the new goal, right? Like, you'll know you've made it when you can teach a class entirely in Chinese and predict where the jokes are going to land and how they're going to be received, right? <laughs> That's like, right. That would be, <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Reuben, it's been phenomenal talking with you. I'm so glad that we got a chance to reconnect after speaking at PyCon. We're going to post links to your website and weekly Python episodes so that people can connect with you. Where do you spend most of your time? If people reach out to you on Twitter, is that the best way to find you as, as you're traveling all over the world? Twitter is great. Email is fine, but I tend to be a little slow in responding just because I'm inundated with so much. Yeah, both of those are totally, totally great. I'm Super, super happy to feel, hear, hear from people from all over the world. It's really a, one of the great privileges that I have to be in touch with so many people. And my plan is to be back at PyCon. Well, not just my plan. I've got a booth. I've been paying for it. So I will definitely be at PyCon. <laughs> um, so if, if any listeners are going to be there in Pittsburgh, I will be very, very happy to meet people in person. Are you guys going to be there? Any plans for that? We're trying to figure that out because we have an obligation at our school where we're part of an innovation institute that we run every year, which is a lot of fun and really interesting. And we get to connect with other educators from all over the country. And it's kind of like this little boutique show, but it happens to start the Monday after PyCon. The so Sunday. The, oh, sorry. The su yes, the, the pre-conference starts on Sunday of oh. PyCon. So we're trying to figure out how to get there because it would be fantastic to go back to Pittsburgh for me. We're trying to swing a one night at least, try to get there and be back to, in order to present because I think we're presenting about four or five times during the conference. <laughs> during, not during PyCon, during, during, PyCon, during, during our, our conference. <laughs> so we have, we have a lot going on. But, you know, Pittsburgh was where I went to college. So for me, it's always fun to go back and it's, it would be a lot of fun to be there. So hopefully we can make it all work and we can catch up and have, have dinner or something while we're there. I would be super well, really, excited by that. It was so great speaking with you, and I, I hope to connect back with you at a later date in between your travels. <laughs> likewise, likewise, so, absolutely. Sounds great. Sounds great. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly. Signing off.